This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This spring semester, CTR is hosting a lecture series under the rubric The Many Guises of European Catholicism, with support from the Center for European Studies at Lund University. Today's episode with Dr. Ole Kindi is the second lecture in that series. Dr. Kindi's talk, Experience of Martyrdom and Persecution During the Soviet Times and the Current Revival of Catholic Churches in Ukraine, is based on memoirs and eyewitness interviews documents from state archives and photographs from private collections, depictions the life stories of Greek Catholics in the USSR from 1946 to 1989, when the UGCC was considered officially abolished and forbidden. And he asks, how does this memory shape the nature and mission of the Catholic Church in Ukraine today? my thanks to Professor Stefan Bobihammer, but also to Benjamin Ekman and also Richard Bobrovich, uh, who have invited me to, or invited us to come and be part of this wonderful uh, series. When I looked at the list, I, I, I wish I could uh, come here more often to participate in many of the other lectures that will be, have been presented and will be presented here. And I'm also very, uh, I'm very honored to see here my professor from old days, from my doctorate studies in Washington DC, Professor Gustav Holmstein. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to also see you here. Um, my topic for, for tonight, um, and I, I must say that um, my personal field of expertise is not so much the 20th century. Uh, as, as many of us uh, want to understand history, we want to dig deeper and my original studies were in patristics, in the early church. But uh, what I will be talking about today is something that <clears throat> has shaped the religious life of Ukraine today, and it is very much connected to the, to the 20th century persecution history. This is uh, an uneasy, very often very personal, and to a very large degree still under-researched field. Um, at the Ukrainian Catholic University, we have a special institute of church history whose uh, main goal is to study uh, the underground church um, in Ukraine. And we have archives, and we've been able to collect many interviews of the survivals of that period. And many of the material that I, have, uh, uh, that I will be presented is, is coming from the testimonies, is coming from the well, living history. Um, and I have brought with me um, a book that the Institute was able to publish, which gives an introduction to this field with some well, big bibliography, but also with many photographs and testimonies also from, um, from this um, period. So if you are interested to learn more, there will be available um, a reference book to, to further your studies and, and also uh, some other points. Um, 
I, uh, I also understand which, uh, that my audience here um, is uh, multifaceted. Some of you are more familiar with Eastern Europe, some of you are less, less uh, uh, familiar with the, um, with the history. So I, I decided to still go from the broader perspective to the narrow, to the 20th century. And I would like to, uh, through my brief introduction, um, also go over you, you know, a, a thousand years of Christianity, and I will try to make it as quick as possible, but to at least point out to you, map Ukraine and church in Ukraine, uh, so that you could imagine European history and inscribe Ukrainian history, where you know, history of Kiev and Rus, uh, history of Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe, in your uh, understanding of, 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 of this. Of, um, so you, you could see Ukraine in the context, that's what I mean. Okay, and then I will go to, the, um, to some of the events of the second half of the 20th century. This is the bloodiest uh, page of European history, of world history with World War II and, and Soviet regime that has done a lot of the, uh, damage to cultures, to religion, to institutions um, for the big ex experiment of building uh, a Soviet society. And um, so I will I'll touch uh, upon that. And if I do have time, I will be happy to, to talk about the revival of the church. If I don't, then we can continue our conversation in the repression period of time. That, so that we can become more uh, familiar with each other and become friends. So let me start straight ahead. Uh, <clears throat> Kievan Rus, as you could uh, um, map here in European, used to be uh, at a certain point one of the largest empires in, in Europe, especially, especially in the period of 9th, uh, 12th, or well, a little bit of the 13th century. Of course, it, uh, it, uh, it was, um, it fell apart, or it was dissolved uh, due to the invasions from the east, from the Mongols, and then also the Polish state also was reviving and also taking over a lot of te territories. So I'll, I'll, I'll touch that in a, in a moment. But of course, the, the, the most central, at least from the religious point of view, event is the baptism of the, of the Kievan Rus uh, by a prince or king, Vladimir the Great, who was able to gather the big land all the way from the, from the, in the south of the Black Sea and, and to Novgorod and to, to the north of Eastern uh, Europe. Um, he, um, it was his political choice, as, as we could see it from his archives, from the, uh, from the people who wrote history in the, in the times. He was shopping for a religion. He was a pagan. Um, by, by birth, his grandmother, Olha, was a Christian, so there was a certain period of Christianization of, uh, of Kievan Rus, even early, in earlier times. But the turning point was the end of the 10th century when uh, uh, Volodymyr uh, decided that his great ally should be the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And so he embraced or received Christianity from the what we call Byzantium, or the eastern part of the, of the Roman Empire. Um, a few interesting moments of, of history of, of the Kievan church, or church uh, of, of the Kievan uh, Rus, would be that uh, though Constantinople and Rome had their disputes, the Kievan hierarchy 
tried to work for Christian unity. Um, they were not really aware of the great schism. So in the very, in many instances, uh, many of the bishops in Kiev would travel to Rome or travel to um, Western centers of Christianity, um, still believing that it's uh, it's it's a, it's one church of the East and West. Um, we know that um, some of the representatives of the of the metropolitan of, of, of Kiev uh, participated in the councils of Lyon or uh, Council of Constance. You know that metropolitan of Kiev, Isidore uh, himself was, was participating in the union of Florence, also one of the great attempts of the Eastern and Western Church to reestablish the, the unity that was lost in the 11th century. And he was one of the promoters of that unity when he traveled back from Constantinople to, to Kiev and many, many other um, regions. Um, Metropolitan of Moscow refused to accept the Union of Florence, and that was uh, one of the first instances of that uh, articulated um, difference between the attitudes and feelings and uh, perceptions of the church in Kiev and the church in Moscow. Uh, the church of Kiev would be very often in tradition, be very often open to Western influences and dialogue with, uh, with, with the Western Church. Um, the Church of Moscow would be more conservative and more, um, um, well, not so open, let's put it this way, to, to, to the Western influences of the period. Um, I, 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 I will also mention a few other uh, points. In 1589, the Metropolitanate of Moscow was elevated to the status of patriarchate, which is a status of full autonomy, so to say. In uh, in the year of 1596, the Kiev and church entered in communion with the See of Rome. So, in in this union of Brest, it um, so to say broke off its communication with Constantinople, which at that time was already in a time of crisis, and this was a decision, uh, we can discuss this uh, from different points of view, um, but for, for the bishops of the Kievan church, it was recognized that it is better for the development and for, uh, for flourishing is to redirect its communication to, 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 to the Church of Rome. We, we have these stories of bishops and, and priests and lay people traveling to Italy, for instance, and observing great renaissance and great you know, explosion of uh, arts and sciences. Um, and when you would travel to Constantinople, to the eastern part of the, of the Roman Empire, this was not the case. It was in decline in that period. So this was a reorientation of, uh, of the church. Um, in, uh, in the year of 1686, uh, the Metropolitanate of Kiev was forcibly subordinated by the Moscow Patriarchate. So the emissaries from Moscow went to Constantinople and, as if requested with certain donation, uh, that the Metropolitan of Kiev would be. Um, uh, so at first, the Kievan bishops themselves uh, decided to be in jurisdiction of, of Rome, but then uh, a parallel jurisdiction was elected or ordained, an Orthodox one that later on became began to 
or it was transferred to the jurisdiction of Oblonska. Um, as the Russian Tsarist Empire grew, it repressed the Eastern Catholics and forced conversions to Russian Orthodoxy. This took place in 1772 when Poland was partitioned in several different, in three parts. Part of it was uh, given to Russia, uh, another part was part of Prussia, and then uh, some parts went, the third part went to Austro-Hungarian Empire, or Austrian Empire, in the territories where there was uh, remainders of the Kievan metropolitan things. It was forcibly transferred or converted, so to say, to, to Orthodoxy. Eastern Catholicism survived in Western Ukraine, which was part of the Austrian Empire, um, after the partition of Poland. Um, uh, and I will um, speak a bit more later on about, about the year 1946, when even the remainders of the Greek Catholic Church or Eastern Catholic Church was converted to um, Russian Orthodoxy, um, <clears throat> with the repercussions that it had with the rest of the or the second half of the 19th century. Um, union with Rome in 1596 was a turning point, of course. Uh, um, there was no uh, orthodox hierarchy for about 30 years. Unit and orthodox parallel structures arose, as I mentioned. Um, unit in communion with Rome and a newly ordained orthodox uh, hierarchy was uh, established and they coexisted in a parallel way. And uh, as I said, that new uh, hierarchy in, in, in some 60 years was transferred to, to the jurisdiction of, of Moscow. Um, Orthodox Kievan Metropolitan was under the authority of the Moscow Patriarchate since uh, 1686. And as I said, Eastern Catholics um, remained only in the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire. Let's, let's now switch to the directly, this was more of a background <coughs> material and uh, we're coming to the 20th century. And 20th century, as you know, uh, one of the, the bloodiest and the, the most dramatic um, uh, history of, uh, of our civilization. Um, Ukrainian territories, of course, suffered enormously. Um, it suffered two world wars. There was an uh, internal civil war. Um, a great famine that took place in 1930s where uh, up to from five to seven million people uh, starved to death. Um, we call it a genocide or a famine in, in Ukraine that not only in 1932, but also earlier with collectivization when the Soviet uh, Union was established, it, it experimented with the economy and, and it had a very negative impact on the on the territories which uh, traditionally were, was considered to be the bread basket of Europe because Ukrainian lands are extremely fertile and provided agricultural goods to, um, to Austro-Hungarian Empire but also elsewhere. Um, surprisingly in the 20th century, um, the territories that are so fertile um, also witnessed um, the tragedy of, of deaths of millions of uh, people. Um, well, this is a, a bit of a connection between um, the 20th century and uh, 21st century. Uh, we, we may, uh, I'll, I'll skip this because we, 
we still, as you know from the news, are in conflict with Russia and, and there is a there is a war uh, happening today in the eastern part of, of the territory uh, of Ukraine. Um, this tension between Ukraine and Russia um, at times was escalated, at times it was eased. Today we are not living the happiest relationship with our eastern, uh, eastern um, border uh, country. Um, we did live, especially in the wake of uh, independence of Ukraine, this period of decommunization, um, and we call it even a special word, Leninopad, where uh, in the Soviet times, every city, every village had a statue of Lenin, and finally those uh, statues, those monuments are slowly removed and put into museums or, or destroyed altogether because many of them are not of any artistic uh, value. But that ideology of, of Lenin and, and the political party that he was head of had an uh, enormous impact on the, uh, on the territories, on the country of Ukraine and also on the religious uh, life. Um, the communist suppression of the Eastern Catholic Church was orchestrated or was um, overseen uh, by Yosef Stalin himself. He was, he was the one to sign special orders for the liquidation uh, of the Greek Catholics. Um, and uh, before I go to the period of persecution, I need to mention um, this name uh, of Metropolitan Andrei Shetitsky, who was the bishop of the city of Lviv, where I come from, for 44 years. He was elected as a, as a bishop in 1940, in 1900, and then he passed away on uh, uh, November 1st of 1944. He was the one that um, was able to live through four different political um, regimes. He was born in what was then uh, Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire later on. He, he lived in the times when Polish state was re-established um, in 1918, 19, 19, after the end of the World War II. He also lived um, the period of arrival of the Soviets in 1939 and also the, the, the arrival of Nazis in Germany. Um, so in, in all these difficult moments, um, he proved to be a great leader. Um, his family, Shaktitsky's family, was, was an old, noble Ukrainian family that with time was converted or transferred into Roman Catholic and Polish aristocracy. But as he grew up, uh, he himself decided to rediscover his roots. So he, he decided to learn Ukrainian and he decided to rediscover for himself Eastern Catholicism. He became the first Brazilian monk and then went through studies that opened to him the beauty of, uh, uh, of the Eastern um, uh, Christianity. It was interesting that in 1906, when he was already the bishop of, uh, of Lviv, um, he decided to uh, go to Jerusalem. This was for him, not only for him, but also, he also gathered around himself uh, intelligentsia, priests, artists, politicians, and he, he commissioned several ships, uh, actually a big trip to Jerusalem. 
It was like a spiritual retreat to go to Jerusalem and rediscover the roots of Christianity, especially for that event. He asked the Pope to be able to wear beard because until then it was so to say prohibited to look Eastern in the Eastern way. And from then on, from this 1906, uh, the year 1906, it is considered to be the so-called Eastern turn or uh, rediscovery of Eastern Christianity among uh, <coughs> Ukrainian Eastern Catholics. Igor Vasilishin, um, if you come tomorrow, will talk more about, for instance, influences of the Roman Catholic Church on liturgical books and liturgical <coughs> practices of the, of the Eastern Catholics, which uh, received a lot of the influence, so to say, of the Latin Church. Um, uh, from 1906 and on, there was an attempt to rediscover the beauty of, of Eastern Christianity, and it was in a very smooth and not rapid or radical way. He would allow uh, both Eastern and Western uh, theological approaches and spiritualities to coexist. He would, for instance, revive Eastern monasticism, which we call the so-called studite monasticism. It's a, it's a special type of monastic practices, but at the same time, he would invite redemptorists and uh, Salesians and um, some other Western uh, monastic orders to establish Eastern wings, so to say. Um, a person of great vision, he, was, uh, he came from this aristocratic family and he, he was considered to be one of those what we would call today social entrepreneurs. He would invest money in various successful businesses and the proceeds of, the, of these businesses. One of them, would, for instance, would be Maslow Soyuz. It's a dairy factory that would make milk products like cheese and sour cream be sold and would, would, be, would be earned from, from those earnings or he would establish several banks himself, smaller banks, like self-reliance type of banks. Um, <coughs> Raiffeisen kind of idea, banks, and then proceeds would be invested not, not into private pockets, but into orphanages, into building galleries, art galleries, uh, establishing educational institutions. Uh, with, with him as, a, as the head of the church, Ukrainian Greek Catholics uh, lived through Renaissance, at least until 1939, before the Germans and I, I'll talk about that later. He was also, uh, in the times of the conflict between Poles and Ukrainians, he would always speak for the, for the defense of life because uh, there were some radical Ukrainians who would be um, using um, assassinations as one of the means to influence politics in, in Poland, and he would directly condemn these actions of association, uh, assassinations. Um, there were some reasons, of course, and we can discuss that at some other point, why Ukrainians got rad radicalized. Um, some say that it was a certain response to radicalization that took place among Poles themselves. Uh, when they reestablished the Polish state, they wanted to have strong institutions, and um, even though, according to the League of Nations agreement, uh, Ukrainians were supposed to have certain autonomy within the reestablished uh, Polish state, many of those uh, <coughs> conditions were not met. The Polish state would not allow for Ukrainian university to be established. 
or Ukrainian state would not allow to have Ukrainian schools. On the contrary, those schools would be closed and there would be a certain Polonization policy um, against which Ukrainians would raise, rise and, and uh, fight against. Well, Metropolitan Andrei would be trying to be in the middle of them and try to establish a dialogue between political parties and, and various groups to find a solution that would not involve blood killing. And one of his encyclicals, one of his letters, Thou shall not kill, addresses that issue. Um, warning about the dangers of radicalization of, of uh, young uh, people's minds that wanted to fight for, for their ideals. Um, well, what, how did the church in the times of Metropolitan Andrei Shepitsky before the persecution look like? It had up to 3,000 parishes, um, many churches, um, five seminaries, two schools. Um, uh, monastic life was flourishing, 127 monasteries, um, newly opened monasteries. Uh, one of the projects, um, and this is something that is connected to my family, my great-great-grandfather, uh, Father Kirill Vasilevsky, as a, as a white priest, he was a married priest, had two daughters, and his wife died, one of the daughters died, one survived, and that's why my grandmother derives her lineage. Uh, he established a monastic orders for uh, a monastic order for uh, for the young ladies that wanted to go to the monastery. But in those times, in order to go to the monastery, you had to pay the so-called vino. It was a kind of contribution to to the monastery. And many of the peasant uh, ladies uh, and their families would not be able to pay the, the amounts. And he said, "Well, I will establish a monastic community where there is no requirement to." To pay any contribution, and he was able to raise funds, for instance, by himself, and that turned to be right now it's, a, it's the largest Ukrainian Catholic um, monastic community, well, religious community, let's put it this way, called Sister Servants of the Immaculate Conception, that whose purpose was to help orphanages, in orphanages, and, and children, and also in the parish life. So uh, this is the time of the revival of monastic life. This is what I mentioned. It's just one example, but many other communities arose and, and were flourishing. So three weekly and six monthly newspapers. Um, at the head of the church, the Metropolitan Andrei Shaptitsky had 10 bishops underneath. So there were uh, four apartments and uh, up to 3,000 priests, over 3.1 million faithful. This is the Catholic, Eastern Catholic Church in Halicina, Galicia. Um, what is today, what would be today, western part of part of Ukraine. Um, so, uh, uh, when the Soviets arrived to um, uh, in 1944 to liberate, as they called it, um, Ukrainian territories, they they also, uh, of course, went all the way to to Berlin. Uh, um, but they waited until 1946. Um, until Metropolitan Andrei Shaftitsky died. Metropolitan Andrei uh, um, had great authority uh, and influence on the peoples, and um, the Soviets have, were busy with many other things. So when they arrived, at first they already began some arrests and some, some persecutions, some even massacres, but um, only 
gently, so to say, if, if this is an appropriate uh, um, term, after 1946, it would be just escalating, um, and all the numbers that I just mentioned would drop drastically into minimal or at least, well, in, uh, in March two, uh, 8th, um, there was the so-called council, uh, the view council, at which uh, no Ukrainian Greek Catholic bishops were present. All of them were already arrested. Um, only some uh, priests were uh, invited to participate, and it was proclaimed that uh, the church itself desires to dissolve or to merge or re-emerge, or as it was put in that time, um, with the Russian Orthodox Church. So it was the act of direct liquidation of the church. If somebody would sign the agreement to become Russian Orthodox Church, the faith, the fate of such a priest, for instance, or such person of the intelligentsia could be still questioned. Uh, but it could be safe, but if, if somebody would not sign, then immediately that person would be arrested. Um, we know that in this period, uh, we have quarter of a million Ukrainians moved to Siberia. Quarter of a million you know, people just put on the trains, and many of them arrived to Siberia. Many of them did not arrive and would, would die in the way of this, uh, of course, in unhuman, uh, in unhuman conditions. Uh, um, so the, the official statement of the, of the pro proclamation would be for the detachment of the parishes of the Greek Catholic Union Church in the USSR from the Vatican and their subsequent unification with the Russian Orthodox Church. The plan, as I mentioned earlier, was carried out by Joseph Stalin's direct uh, direction, uh, order. Um, Stalin orchestrated uh, no Ukrainian Greek Catholic bishops were present. Uh, Russian Orthodox bishops came in. There was an initiative group, so three priests, uh, one from Lviv Eparchy, another one from Ternopil, another one from Stanislav Eparchy, who as if they expressed the, their desire to lead this council and they were trying to persuade that it is a good idea to merge with the, with the Russian Orthodox Church. The fate of those three priests was also very, uh, um, very bloody. They were killed afterwards by the Soviets themselves, although the, the Soviets claimed that the Ukrainian nationalists that carried out the, uh, the, uh, the execution, but we know from the archives that it was, was the initiative of the, of the Communist Party to, to kill them. So 3,000 priests arrested. Uh, were, well, uh, at that time, we had about 3,000 priests. Um, one third, quote unquote, converted to the Russian Orthodox, uh, and two thirds exiled to Siberia. Those who converted, so to say. Many of them have been sent to Siberia anyways. Um, they were uh, uh, asked to collaborate with KGB. Uh, they were asked to uh, give the reports, the weekly or monthly reports, how many people go to church. Um, there were cases when they were forced to break the sacrament of, uh, of confession so that people, would, whatever they would say at the confessions, these priests were under supervision of the KGB. They had to kind of deliver and give reports. Um, 
in the middle of the uh, 1946 in Stanislav region, officially uh, out of 216 priests, um, um, well, uh, from 322, well, in 46, uh, one third was immediately removed, um, and later on, uh, even the, the remainder uh, was taken with this more. So, so 1946 was a was a year uh, of very drastic and rapid um, uh, persecution, which carried on later in the next years. Um, from 1944 until 1989, the, well, th these are some of the names of 28 people that were uh, proclaimed as new martyrs of the Ukrainian uh, Greek Catholic Church when John Paul II uh, visited Ukraine in 2011 with his special uh, bulla. He proclaimed these new martyrs. And I, uh, for the remainder of the the time that I have, and I, I need to check my, my time. It's already, I have 10 more minutes. I, I, I wanted to give a little bit of a flavor of some of the people that were killed in, in their fates. Maybe not all of them, at least two or three names I still would like to mention. Uh, Father uh, I, what I'm looking at is uh, I've, I've brought some of the testimonies of the, of the people that knew these people um, in person. Um, they were, uh, uh, that's what I'm looking at. Uh, Father Marian Koch um, um, is today proclaimed the patron of, of Ukrainian Greek Catholic priests. Uh, he, um, uh, during his pastoral ministry, um, he was the voice for the, uh, for the oppressed. Uh, he uh, was very friendly with the, with the Jewish community. Jewish community that also suffered, as you know, during the Nazi period, uh, ex extermination. Uh, obviously, the, this was, was uh, uh, one of the most unhuman acts that the Nazis carried out during the World War II. Um, but he would defend the rights of uh, not only Ukrainians, but also other ethnic communities. He was uh, in a similar way as uh, uh, the priest uh, martyr in Polish history, uh, Kolbe, um, who gave his life for the, for the people in prison. So in the same way, Omidyan Koch also decided to go to the, prison, to, to the prison and ask for the release of the people. He would say that it's better to, if you take me instead of the other people, release others. Um, from his letter, we see that he, he wrote that here in the prison, you're all equal. Uh, Poles, uh, Jews, Ukrainians, Russians, Latvians, Estonians, from all those present, I am the only priest. I cannot even imagine what it would be like here without me. Um, he, he saw this as his personal charisma and opportunity.
to serve um, in the in the prison, and uh, in, um, he was uh, he was executed um, together with many others um, during his time uh, in prison. Father Mikola Konrad. Um, he was born in um, 1876 in the village of Strusiv in the Ternopil district. He finished his philosophical and theological studies in Rome, where he defended his doctoral dissertation in 1899. He was ordained to priesthood. He taught in high school in Berezhan and Terebovle in 1929. In Lviv, he founded this organization called Obnova, or Revival, the first Ukrainian Association of Catholic Students. Um, in 1930, he was in, invited by the Metropolitan Andrei to teach at the Lviv Theological Academy. He was later appointed to be a parish priest in, uh, in, in the city of Strach. There, in, as in previous years, he showed his great diligence and responsibility. Um, and as once he was returning for visiting a sick woman, he was requested, um, where, where he was delivering the sacrament of reconciliation, he died tragically as a martyr for faith at the hands of NKVD on June 26, 1940. Uh, 41. Together with him uh, there was uh, Vladimir Prima, his cantor, a layman, uh, who lived in the same village of Strach, and um, they walked together uh, from that lady where they delivered uh, some pastoral uh, care, and both of them were massacred with an axe. Um, well, the yeah, I, I, I don't have much time, I, I'm realizing I need to be finishing, but um, I'll, I'll just uh, show you a few more photographs of, of the people um, that um, have, uh, have suffered from the hands of NKVD. Uh, Marder Vodemir Prema was born, um, I, I mentioned him already. Um, uh, this is Father Andriy Ishchak who you see here in the photograph. He um, was born in 1987 in Mokolaev, in the Lviv district. He finished his theological studies at universities in Lviv and Innsbruck in Austria. In 1914, he received his PhD in theology and was ordained. Beginning from 1939, he taught, he taught dogmatic theology and canon law at the Lviv Theological Academy. He was able to combine his professional duties with his pastoral work in a small village of Sikhiv near Lviv, where he met his death. Even under the threat of great danger, he did not leave his parishioners without spiritual guidance. He was faithful to the end, and on June 26, 1941, he died uh, as a martyr for the faith at the hands of the soldiers of the retreating Soviet army. And there's, a, there's a testimony of uh, one of the parishioners, Ivan Kulchitsky, who would say, as the war began, the priest was taken at Persenkivka, the neighboring station. Sometime in afternoon, they took him, detained him until the evening. Then they let him go. My dad, because they knew each other well, told him, Father, uh, when they let you go, I would advise you to hide for a few days, because it was already clear that the Germans were coming and the Bolsheviks would be fleeing and uh, the response would hide yourself and we will survive. But the priest said, Ivan, the shepherd doesn't abandon his flock and I can't leave my parishioners and conceal myself. 
in two days the military came and took him from his home. It was overgrown uh, with bushes, some distance from the parish, maybe a half kilometer. They brought him and killed him. They shot him in the stomach and it looked like they also stabbed him with a knife. Uh, many other fates, Father Severan Baranek or Father Joachim Sinkivsky, um, several nuns uh, that were also uh, killed on site in, in their monasteries. Uh, um, most of the bishops um, uh, were, were also executed. Um, the, the head of the, or the successor of the Metropolitan Andrei this is a big name, um, Yosef Slipei, uh, he was arrested. He was given a chance to be a, a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church, but he refused and he spent uh, about 17 years in, in Siberia. And then in, uh, during the Vatican II, um, there was an exchange of prisoners and he was released from the prison and he was allowed to travel to Rome and one of the first things that uh, he did as he arrived to Rome, he participated in the Second Vatican Council, as I mentioned, but he also established the Ukrainian Catholic University in Rome, which still exists today as affiliation of our university uh, in Lviv. He's a confessor of faith um, and also voice of the persecuted church in, in the world. As he arrived to Rome, he was a sick man uh, uh, already, so Soviets thought that he would die quite soon, but instead he, his health uh, improved and he was able from 1964 until 1984 for 10 years to travel around and speak for the, on behalf of the, of the church. I will, I will, uh, I will finish uh, my talk with, uh, with a quote of Yosef uh, Kladuchny, who was a very close friend um, of Metropolitan Andrei Shaptitsky. Uh, he was at, at the last moments of the earthly life of the Metropolitan Andrei Shaptitsky, and th this is what he said, and this, is, this gives or sheds life on the revival of the church um, uh, and the hopes um, that many of the people that died during the persecution, they, they had a dream, they had a um, great well, purpose in their life, they, their, their, their sacrifice was not in vain. And it, it came from this shared vision that the head of the church, Metropolitan Andrei Shepitsky had. So here, here's what Yosef Kvalichny said about Metropolitan Andrei Shepitsky, last moments of earthly life. The Metropolitan lay calmly with eyes shut and breathed with difficulty. This is 1944. Four. The Soviets are already um, ha have taken over the, the country. Um, then he began to pray again. He opened his eyes and began to talk to us. Our church will be ruined, destroyed by the Bolsheviks. But you will hold on. Do not renounce the faith, the Catholic faith. A difficult trial will fall on our church, but it is passing. I see the rebirth of our church. It will be more beautiful, more glorious than of old, and it will embrace all our people. Ukraine, the Metropolitan continues, will rise again from the destru her destruction and will become a mighty state, united, great, comparable to other highly developed countries. Peace, well-being, happiness, 
high culture, mutual love, and harmony will rule here. It will all be as I say. It is only necessary to pray that the Lord God and the Mother of God will care for our poor, tired people who have suffered so much that God's care will last forever. Um, so uh, the, the, the great care, or the, the great vision that even though the persecutions arrive, arrived to, to these territories and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, massacred, um, taken their homes away. Um, but um, during the persecution in the 50s and 60s, the, the church was able to, uh, um, to keep underground uh, seminaries, uh, underground network of, uh, of people. Um, the, the monasteries uh, existed in clandestine way, so there would be uh, communities living as secular people, that, but they would keep uh, strong ties. So when, uh, when uh, the Gorbachev's era began, became the, this whole um, spirit and also the dream of the revival of the church was flourishing among the people. And, and soon enough, uh, with, with this wind of change, as, as, as one of the singers uh, formulated, uh, church was able to reestablish its structures in, in uh, quite uh, rapid and quick ways. Uh, on December 1st, 1989, the government permitted the Greek Catholic communities to register. Um, in 1991, Ukrainian independence um, took place, and so five million Greek Catholics who uh, were considered to be Russian Orthodox, they, they returned and, and reclaimed themselves as, as Catholics. Um, of course, this was uh, called proselytism on the part of the Vatican by the Russian Orthodox Church, but from the, from the history as we see it, uh, uh, Greek Catholics uh, uh, dreamed about their re revival, and that's what they did. I mentioned the Ukrainian martyrs and uh, difficult relationships I will, I will skip all of that. Today, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is one of the largest Eastern Catholic churches. And as of 2014, um, it had estimate of up to 5 million faithful in Ukraine, but many more in diaspora. 39 bishops, um, up to 4,000 parishes, uh, more than 3,000 of us. So it, it revived in, in, in 20 years. Um, to, the, to, to the level as it was before World War II, and now it is also uh, growing further. Uh, I, I must stop here and leave maybe some room for, for questions, and as I said, um, uh, the, the times of the revival and different projects and aspirations that the Church has today for, for this country, um, I will be happy to share with you either in this format uh, or later um, during their refreshments. Thank you very much for, for your attention.